0: So, uh, let's get into God's Word. I, I'm, I'm making a slight... Thanks, Jairus. Appreciate it, brother. I'm making a slight adjustment in, in uh, the sermon that I'm going to preach today. We're preaching through the Gospel of John. If you're a guest with us, that's where we've been for the last four or five weeks. We're going to be in the Gospel of John today. But along with the elders, I just felt like we, the, the, the Holy Spirit would have us to take, to move a little bit further along in John, to to look at a passage of scripture that I really believe is on the Lord's heart for all of us this morning. In the midst of everything that's happening and that we're experiencing as a church, as a nation, I I just feel like there's something here for us. And so we're going to zip ahead. If you have your Bible, uh, go to John chapter 13. So John chapter 13, and that's where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to pay particular attention to two verses in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Now, when we get, we won't skip over this. Like when we, we're, we're a long way from John 13, right? Church, we're only in John 3. When we get to John 13, we'll preach this passage again. But I, but I believe there's something here For us. So let me pray. I pray, Spirit of God, what I'm asking you to do this morning is to pin your word to our hearts. Shape us by your word. Father, you are the great creator and sustainer of all things. Jesus you are the one true light and the great savior of the world. Holy Spirit you are the great sanctifier of God's people. Sanctify us by your truth in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Heard a story once I might have shared it with you guys in the past but I I heard it and it's going it's a little modified for this morning's use. Imagine a young police officer who was taking his final exam for the Downingtown police force. And the first three questions that they asked him, piece of cake, easy. But then he got to the fourth question, and the fourth question went like this. You're on patrol in Downingtown. An explosion occurs in a gas main blows a massive hole in the street on investigation you find this large hole and next to the hole there's an overturned van overturned van there's people inside it who are seriously injured and there's a strong smell of alcohol coming from the vehicle When you get to the vehicle, you look who's inside. The the person is unconscious, but it's actually your supervising sergeant. A passing motorist stops to assist you, but you realize that this person is actually wanted for armed robbery. Suddenly, another man runs out of his house, exclaiming that the explosion has forced his wife into premature labor, and that she is actually having a baby. Could he come provide assistance? The birth seems imminent. There's another man crying out for help because the explosion blew him into a deep, let's imagine for a minute, a deep section of the brandy wine, and he can't swim. Bearing in mind, the question says, the provisions of the Mental Health Act describe in a few words what actions you would take. The police officer thought for a moment, picked up his pen and wrote, I would take off my uniform and mingle with the crowd. I would take off my uniform and just mingle with the crowd. I'd pretend I wasn't a police officer. That's always the temptation for a Christian to take off the Christian uniform and just mingle with the crowd and just go along with the world. And I think it's particularly challenging in these days for Christians to to live distinctly from the world. And I think we have, church, this incredible opportunity in front of us. Sometimes it doesn't feel like an opportunity, but I believe we have an opportunity in front of us. Right here, right now, in this incredibly tense cultural moment, in these increasingly polarizing political times in all the differences of opinion that are out there about how COVID-19 crisis should be handled, the issues of masks, the constant vitriol that we see on social media, the tribalism that's being reinforced by the circles of influence that we happen to move in, The the really ruthless cruelty that is being expressed against one another in the world. Those that think differently than us. Those that have a different opinion on things than us. Those that we disagree with. But I really do believe, church, that as Christians... We have this incredible opportunity to live distinctly from the contemporary rhythms of the world. I wonder, I wonder what God is doing in the church. What what is God doing? Don't you wonder what is God up to? He's up to something, guys. He's up to something. He's not, he hasn't checked out. He's, he, we believe that the scriptures teach that he sovereignly rules over every aspect and detail of every single one of our lives. That he's ruling and reigning. That means he's doing something. The scripture tells us that he's going to work all things for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. How is he going to do that? What is he doing? Oh, if we could understand the mind of God. If our our tiny little minds could comprehend his eternal expansiveness. I wonder though, don't you wonder what God is doing? And I wonder, I wonder if one of the things that God is doing is purifying the church. He's refining us. He's purifying his bride so that, this has always been God's intent for the church, always God's intent, that the church would stand like a city on a hill. So what if what God is doing is he's making his bride pure so that she actually stands distinct like a bright shining light in the darkness all around us? Could it be that God is doing this, church? So we have to resist the temptation to blend in with what's going around us, going on around us, and actually embrace and be the people that God has saved us to be, that He's called us to be. So the questions that I'll ask, I'll ask in a lot of different ways right now as we start in on, as we read a text and seek to unpack its truth, what is it that makes us distinct? What is it that makes Christians a city on a hill? What is the quality that should have this controlling center of our lives? What, what quality is that? Could we, could we summarize, even in one word, the quality that should control us and define us as Christians? Is there a way of living, church? Is there a way of living that Jesus demands would function centrally in our lives? Another way of saying it, what marks us out as followers of Jesus? Jesus refers to it in this passage, John 13, and he basically says this, if you're going to be mine, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to to be the Jesus people, then you're going to have to live with the mark of Jesus on your life. You need to live by a new commandment. In other words, Jesus is saying, if if the work that I came to do has its intended effect upon you, in other words, if I become your Savior and you choose to follow me and enjoy the forgiveness that I came to purchase for you and then to live your life in obedience to me, that is going to mark you forever. It's got to do that. It's it's gotta mark you forever. Some of you know that I suffered an accident this past summer, earlier in the summer. And I was, this will make, make you cringe maybe, but I was on a bench in the weight room and I had 50-pound dumbbells in my hands and I was at the end of my set and so I, was, I wanted to let the 50-pound dumbbells drop. So you just kind of let the weight of them go down like this. And when I did that, I forgot that I had left some other dumbbells underneath. And so I dropped them down but smashed, nearly amputated my finger between the two dumbbells. I got this little Band-Aid on right now. They did surgery on it to try to repair it. I will be, it appears, forever marked by that day in the gym. It is extremely gross to look at my finger. I used to have, I think, except for biting my nails, I had decent-looking fingers. Now I gross my wife and family out when I take my Band-Aid off forever marked, significantly marked by this experience. So the same is for any one of us that have an experience with Jesus that results in us following him. You will be forever marked. You'll you'll forever carry the mark. What is the mark? What's the distinguishing mark of someone that has said, I'm with Jesus, and Jesus has rescued me and he saved me and I'm going to live with him for forever and ever and ever and ever. What's the mark? In talking with his disciples, which is what's happening in this context, and talking with them about what their lives would look like from then on, Jesus gave him a new commandment, a new expectation of what would make them distinct a new way of living in light of Jesus having given them their new uniform. Here it is. John 13. I'm going to start, I said verse 34, and now we're going to camp out on verses 34 and 35, but look at verse 33. He's speaking to his disciples, and I'll explain the context here in a moment, but he says, little children, he's speaking to the disciples, he calls them children, You can go home and think on that. I love it. Yet a little while, I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. There it is. What is it? that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Summarize. Our love for Jesus shows up in our love for others. You ask, where does my love for Jesus show up? In your love for others. Your love for others is a mark of your love for Jesus. Our love for Jesus shows up in our love for for others. Now, let me set the context here so you can understand what's going on. The dinner, the meal, he's sitting with his disciples and they've had a meal together. And the meal that they are celebrating is famously understood as the last supper. It's his last gathering with his disciples and he's speaking to them. He's just finished washing their feet. You guys are familiar with these stories, right? Nod your head. (laughs) they've just finished, he's just finished washing their feet, a powerful moment. It's the end of Jesus' ministry, so we're nearing the end. It's interesting, it's only John 13 and we got a lot more chapters to go, which tells us that John is really going to hone in, really going to focus on the last days of Jesus, the end of his ministry. He's very close to the cross And as they begin to eat this special celebratory meal together, Jesus alerts them of a few things that are extremely troubling. If you were there at this dinner, you would be shocked. One, that the Savior washed your feet. But then he tells them that one of them is going to betray him. When you're reading the Bible... In addition, and we're trying to understand it, in addition to just studying the words, the Bible, the study of the words, or even understanding the context, understanding the, the original language, all those things are important. But there's something that's more, that's basic that all of us can do. And that is we should read the text and enter into the drama of it. We don't do that normally. We just, we just read it. We know the stories. But you should read every text, certainly narrative, existentially. Not in, the, not in the philosophical sense, but in the sense you should put yourself in it. You should try to exist in the text. And if you do that, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna experience the drama of Jesus telling his closest friends, what he's been telling them all along, that his death, he's going to die and it's real close now. That's a serious moment. Imagine having dinner with some of your closest friends and loved ones and them sharing with you, you know, my death is coming. I'm going to die real soon, a couple days. That's a memorable conversation at the table, right? But then he says to these closest friends, one of you, after, I, after he tells you he's going to die, one of you is going to betray me. Enter into the drama of that. Who? How could that be? We're all band of brothers here. Now, there's an important detail to remember because most paintings of the Last Supper don't capture this. Most paintings of the Last Supper, and I have one in mind. You know the the Da Vinci Last Supper. My mom was real artistic and, and crafty, and when she was younger, she painted an oil paint by number, of the last supper. It was big. And it was that, a rendition of the the Da Vinci. And it was real long and it hung. My great-grandmother hung it in a prominent place in her home. And, And you know the picture I'm talking about, right, that has Jesus there at the center and it's got all the disciples seated around him. That's probably not an accurate picture of what the Last Supper looked like. Now the Jews back then did sit at tables with chairs, but probably not for this meal. This meal was a celebratory meal. And in Luke, he tells us that Jesus tells us that Jesus reclined at table. So maybe you've seen you guys, I don't know how much you guys watch. Are you guys old movie watchers on Netflix? My family has a hard time watching. My wife's shaking her head now she won't do that. I like to experience it, taking in the art of it. But you remember like the old Ten Commandments and the, like the, or like Samson and Delilah and they were kind of laying there, you know, or these like Roman feasts, the Roman emperors, they would just kind of lay there and people would be dropping grapes or feeding them grapes. But then you know what I'm talking about, right? That's probably more what it looked like. Jesus was reclining a table, so they laid down. He literally would have been something more like this, On his left hand, right hand, free to eat. That's what it looks like. All right? So that's what's happening. John, we know from the context, was leaning so close. The scripture says, on his bosom. He was leaning so close to Jesus, sitting so close to Jesus, that it appears that if Jesus was laying here, John was laying probably right here, that all John had to do was lean towards Jesus and face him, and Jesus leaned towards him, and their their heads would have been very close together. So when Jesus tells them all that one of you is going to betray them, John leans real close to Jesus, says, who is it? Then Peter, laying somewhere else around the table, motions to John, who is the disciple that Jesus loved. He loved them all, but he's often noted this way. He prompts John to take advantage of his close position to Jesus and ask him, who is it? We don't know if everybody heard this. But we know that Jesus responded to John. We don't even know if Peter heard it. We only know that John said, who is it? And Jesus said, the one that I give this piece of bread to. And then he gave it to Judas. We don't even know if Peter knew. Only one person we are confident of knew at that moment who was going to betray him. And it was the person who had asked. And at that moment, something about that action caused Judas to utterly reject Jesus. It says that Satan, you can read the context, Satan entered him, took control of his heart. And Jesus said, do it quickly and get it over with. And then he leaves. This verse 34 is after Judas left. So Judas leaves and Jesus says these words. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. I'll add another comment that I think he's getting out here. Don't betray one another. Don't, don't, don't commit treason against one another. It's in, you see the context, right? The context is in betrayal. And he's saying, not so with you guys. Not so with you guys. Not so with my followers. We're going to love one another. That's the mark. By this, People will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus identifies a sure sign of faith in him. What is it, church? What's that sure sign of faith in him? What's the mark of someone whose life has been transformed by Jesus? It's love. It's love. Our love for Jesus shows up in our love for other people. Here we have a real test of our salvation. Love for, in this case, in this context, love for the brothers. Real test of our salvation. Love for one another. Francis Schaeffer called this the mark of the Christian. Love. It's this theme of Christianity. Christianity. It's the theme of the gospel. It's the meaning of as I have loved you. How should we love others? As I have loved you, Jesus says. That's the love that we should show others. How do you define that love? What's what's a a word that demonstrates what this love is like? How has Jesus loved them? How has Jesus loved us? Sacrificially. Sacrifice. Sacrifice is at the heart of the gospel. Sacrifice is at the heart of Jesus' love for you. Jesus' love for us. Tom Holland, who's the brother of Elizabeth Elliot, he's a Catholic writer. He describes the center of Christianity in terms of looking at the temple. And in looking at the temple, he talks about how the temple was built according to the specs, according to God's word. the, The temple and the tabernacle were built very precisely according to God's specifications. God planned every little architectural detail about the temple and about the tabernacle, and everything was laid precisely in its place. But when you get to the very center of the temple the very center of, as Tom would say, the center of reality, the center of the universe, the center of God's plan of redemption for his people, there's no image there. There's nothing to bow down to. There's a golden slab. That's what's there at the center. The mercy seat. And on top, it's on top of the Ark of the Covenant It's over the law, and it's the place that was sprinkled with blood. At the heart, he says, of the temple, at the heart of all reality, at the heart of creation, at the heart of redemption is blood sprinkled. It's sacrifice. It's my life for yours. That's what Jesus says. That's what the gospel says. Jesus says, I give my life for yours. That's the demonstration of love, church. That's what love is. That's, that's even when we were talking about peace, peace not being a feeling, love not being not, not a, a, a warm, fuzzy feeling. Now, it can include those things, but love at its core, love at the center of redemption, love at the center of world history is Jesus saying, my life for yours. But sin makes us operate with a very different principle. We don't tend to naturally operate my life for yours. We tend to operate with the exact, sin makes us operate with the exact opposite principle, which is your life for mine. You exist for me. You must sacrifice for me. So then I can be happy. Sin makes us work on that principle your life for me. I'm going to make you sacrifice for me. You're, for, you're going to sacrifice for my interests. You're going to surrender for my perspective. You must surrender your needs to serve mine. But Christ came into the world saying, My life for you. My life to serve you. My life poured out for you. My sacrifice is for you. So there really are two ways in which we have an opportunity to live our lives every day, every hour. You either can live with the world's principle, your life for mine, or you can live according to a new commandment. You can live according to Jesus. You can be marked by what Jesus says should mark us. My life for yours. That's the choice we have. Every every hour, probably within the hour, many opportunities, right? Every hour of every day, are we living, church, my life for you? Or, Or are we living with the perspective of your life for me? In marriage, you see this. (laughs) Don't you see this in marriage? Healthy marriages, Christ gospel-centered marriages, live with this, my life for you. Your life for me creates marital struggle. Parenting, you see this. You see this in any close relationship. This principle is continually being tested in our lives, frequently being applied. I can think of times where Amy and I were, where we were preparing to go out on a date. And I can think of moments where I have given a lot of thought to to that experience that we were going to have. And just times where, and I can't think of anything specific, but there have been times where she might have said something like, you know what? Um, I'd prefer not to go out tonight. Long day at work, I'd just rather not go. Now, what's it going to be for me? I could say, what are you talking about? I've done all this planning, I'm ready to spend money, and we're going out on this date, and I don't really care how you feel because this is really about me and my experience. So we're going to go on this date. Or I could say, fine. You know, a lot, of, a lot of women would love to be married to a man like me who, who wants to take you out, wants to, to bless you, wants to spend money on you, but you want to stay at home. You're tired. You don't want to go. You want to turn down this nice invitation. You go ahead. You do whatever you're going to do, and I'm going to do what I'm going to do downstairs. So we both watch Netflix on our iPads a couple floors apart. what has that date become for kenny kenny's motives kenny's what kind of principle is kenny living from is he living from my life for yours or is it your life for mine there's a way kenny could live according to Jesus' principle there. He could say, hey, we can always do this plan. We can can do this again another time. What is it that you need? What is it that would make you happy? What could we do tonight? Maybe we'll we'll stay inside. Let's do something together. Let's read. There's a way in which I could say, my life for yours. But it's so easy to live by the world's principle, isn't it? All real love is substitutionary sacrifice. All real love is, requires sacrifice. It requires my life for yours. Notice that Jesus calls this a new commandment. In what sense is this new? Why would he say that? The Old Testament is filled with the commands to love one another. There's irony here because there's actually nothing new about the commandment. You can go to Leviticus and see the command that we're called to love one another. You can see this theme traced through the scriptures. What's new about it, Jesus? Why would you say this is a new commandment? The new thing appears to be the mutual affection that Christians are to have for one another on account of Jesus' love for them, which is getting ready to be clearly demonstrated on the cross. That's what's new about it. The new may have something to do with the context of betrayal. In other words, Christ is asking his disciples to live with steadfast love for one another. Are we living that way, church? Are we living with a love that is steadfast towards one another? A love that stands up when push comes to shove? Well, our love is being tested, our love for one another is being rattled. Church, will we look different than the world? Will our love for one another show that we are actually Jesus followers? That's what Jesus says. They'll know. The world will know your Christians, how, church? By your love for one another. So that's the question we must ask. Are the people that are closest to me, what would people learn about my experience with my family and my, my love for them what would they learn about Christianity by observing me? What, would, what are people saying about the church, about Brandywine Grace and other churches in the area and other churches throughout the nation and other churches throughout the world? Jesus says that the way we treat one another is going to make a statement about who he is and about his sacrificing my life for you kind of love. I find it difficult to conceive that there are Christians and I know they're out there. There's Christians who can't talk to one another right now. I was having a conversation with someone from this church recently because of a a differing political viewpoint that there's actually someone that they love that they can't actually, the person has said, I can't talk to you right now. In other words, can't display love when push has come to shove. Can't disagree with one another on matters that are significantly below the unifying gospel of Jesus Christ. This makes a statement to the world. And I, what's hard for me to conceive is that there's people that, that have decided that they that they're just can't love one another right now, but are actually going to live forever in heaven together. I mean, we gotta get our minds around that church. I'm not talking about for theological reasons you don't go to the same church. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about because we disagree on some issue that's not at the height of the gospel makes us so that we can't sit near one another, can't interact with one another, can't talk to one another. Church, I'm not saying that my life for yours is easy. Oh man, am I not saying that. (laughs) Even conversations among the pastoral team over over all kinds of things that we're trying to work out together have become an opportunity to say love is what's going to unify us. We're not going to we're not going to sacrifice love even though we do not agree on every decision that we make. We're trying to move forward with unity. But we don't agree and we argue. And sometimes elders meetings at the end of a long day of Zooming and then a Zooming elders meeting or even an elders meeting in person can be a challenge because living with this new commandment is hard to do. It's hard to disagree with someone and still maintain love. It's not easy. There's a lot of speculation church among scholars, about the, 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 the conversation around the table here. Jesus and his disciples. And the discussion focuses typically on where the disciples were actually seated. Specifically, there's a lot of talk about John, the writer of the gospel, and him being the beloved disciple. Some argue And it's interesting to ponder these things. We're speculating now, but some would argue that John was on his right. And they would argue that because it's assumed that the right, the right hand of God, you've heard that the right was the place of honor. So, a lot of people believe that because he was the disciple, the, the, the one noted as a disciple that Jesus loved, that John assumed the seat of honor. That was a logical place for him to sit. It does appear that John was likely sitting on his right, but in ancient Near Eastern culture, the seat of honor was not on the right, it was on the left. but we're not told who was sitting on the left. Maybe it was Peter. But you go back to my little visual there. If this is Jesus and this is John and this is Peter right here, then why would Peter have needed to ask John to ask Jesus who it was that was going to betray him? He was close enough that he could have asked him himself. So Peter wasn't seated in the place of honor. The consensus is that the man who was seated in the place of honor that night, who was close enough for Jesus to simply reach over and give him a piece of bread, was Judas. The honored disciple was the one that proved the most treacherous. Jesus loved him to the end. We should see the love of Christ here, at church. How hard is it to love someone that you know is going to treat you treacherously? And this is what we see our Savior doing. This is what he's done for all of us because all of us have committed treason against Jesus. This is the kind of love that he shows to us. I'm not saying that it's easy. Peter is actually on the verge of denying Jesus. The next section, Jesus tells him that you're going to deny him after Peter makes these acclamations of I'm going to go to the death for you. And all of the disciples are going to abandon him. Despite their best intentions, they don't have the strength in themselves to stand loyal to Jesus, let alone loyal to one another. Church, we too are prone to fall. Apostle Paul says, if you think you're standing, watch out if you're confident in your own ability to be loyal to Jesus to the end, man, you should, that should give you cause for concern. Because Peter and the rest of the disciples abandoned Jesus. The failures of Judas and Peter and the other disciples should cause us to cry out to God, to fall onto our knees and surrender, asking Jesus to cause us. I even changed the word. I was going to say to help us to stand loyal to him. And I changed the word to actually cause us. It's his grace that will cause us to actually remain loyal to him to the end. We need that grace, church. We need it more than ever. We need grace to love and remain loyal to Jesus and to love one another even when that loving is difficult. Church, we should be crying out to God for help in these troubling times, in these tumultuous times. We should be asking God for help to to remain, for the power to remain loyal to Jesus and that our loyalty to Jesus would show up in our love and loyalty to one another. Are you asking God? help. Love for Jesus shows up in our love for, our, for others. How will the reminder of this new commandment function in your life Today. How will it function in your life this week? In preparing this message, I became acutely aware by the work of the Spirit of a conversation that I need to have with someone that I love but I disagree with. And Jesus is showing me That my attitude has not been towards this person, my life for yours. I was hurt by some cutting words that they spoke to me. But what Jesus is helping me to see is not the focus on their cutting words but on how I have chosen to become bitter. Doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about the cutting words. Not saying that. I've got a phone call to make so that I could live out of this new commandment. My life for yours. How about you? Any phone calls that you need to make? Any conversations that you've been avoiding? Any actions that you need to take to, to ensure that you're actually living my life for yours? That you're actually living out of that new commandment? The challenges we're facing as a nation, as a community, as a church, I believe God is using them to refine us, to purify us, to remind us of the incredible importance of loving one another even when push comes to shove, to remain steadfast. When I was growing up, we had a potbelly stove in our home, which heated our, heated our home. It was a wood stove. It was the kind you see maybe in old, uh, you know, you can see in, in, in books. Um, the potbelly stove was actually a coal-burning stove, but they called it a potbelly because it was kind of shaped like this. It kind of was fat, and then it came up like that. And it was about six feet tall, and it was what we heated our home with. And in the bottom of that stove was a big cast-iron grate, there was a handle that, that would go on to the, to the grate. And the handle was used to rattle the stove because the fire needed to allow the, the wood to pass through the grate. The, the stuff that had been burned up, that couldn't be used, that wasn't useful anymore. The, the small little burning embers that were, really weren't going to contribute to the heat of the fire. All that stuff needed to be shaken out. And rattled. And so in the morning, I can still hear it in my, in my, in my mind. My dad or me shaking that stove. <laughs> You'd hear it rattling. And, and then there was a, a place where everything passed through the grate. And you shoveled all of the refuse out. I believe that what God is doing is rattling us like that pot-belly stove and all the refuse and all the old charcoal is dropping through the grid. And what remains is a red hot burning coal of undying love for Jesus that shows up in an undying love for one another. Would you pray that that's what God would do in us? Amen.